Evans, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. It's great to chat with you again. Yeah, great to chat with you, Jake. Uh, really looking forward to it, and it's a, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be back. So, as people will probably know now, we're we're going back to interview some of the most popular guests and some of the most insightful. And I do urge everyone that haven't already, or even if they have, to go back and, and check out your episode. And I'll uh, I'll make sure it's easily accessible, given we talked a lot about pretty important principles around betting, and then some of the things that you've learned from other. Uh, things like finance, for example, and I think we even talked about Bitcoin and, and a few other things back then. So I'm interested and, and very excited to get back into some of those topics, but more so the different ones. And uh, we'll see how we go here. But I guess just starting off, um, in terms of the last couple of years, is there anything that stands out that has changed or evolved quickly, either on the uh, the analysis side and the, the handicapping or even the, the betting side? Is it is it something... You know, it's it's a similar circumstance as to when we last spoke, or are there you know major changes at this point? Uh, well, things are always evolving from a, a form perspective. Firstly, we're in a bit of a data revolution at the moment. I would say data is becoming more widespread, more mainstream, more accepted. Sectional times are you know more accessible. You can you can pay for sectional data from the likes of Sicardi and Daily Sectionals and Paul Daly Ratings to Win, Shane Baker Punning for Michael Fraser and the like. But we're also getting to a stage where Vince, for example, is providing sectionals for most metropolitan race clubs and, and major racing jurisdictions to the point where anyone can access basic sectionals for, for every horse in a, in a race. And there are good quality commercial databases available. Ratings to Win and Punning Form and South Coast are all highly regarded. There are many pros who use those or their own. Your race sectionals are freely available, but many punters are at, or at a loss really on how to use them as an analytical tool and, and, and what value do they sort of assign to those sectionals and, and how, how do they use them. But speed maps can be generated at the click of a button, uh, can be obtained from free websites. There's, there's more information on tracks and weather and, and potential biases and the quality of analysis on mediums such as racing.com and those sorts of things is, is improving as credit to the likes of Shane Anderson and Matt Welsh have tried to drive more quality insight and analysis and an unbiased conversation and discussion where they can. And theoretically, as has continued to be the case throughout time, there's there's more information and insight and, and data available. But yeah, the argument is that you know the good quality punters and 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 the winning punters have always had a more advanced level of of information and tools available to them. I suppose the difference now is is that's less exclusive and, uh, you know, you could argue that the gap between those winning punters and those that had no real useful information has has reduced and, and there's, you know, an opportunity for punters to, to gain data and access information more readily and more easily. Uh, they're also more able now to access the, the actual insights and information and, and tips of, of full-time professionals and that sort of thing. So, so that gap's narrowed and the, the opportunity's widened for people to, to win punting. So leveraging that, that data and, and finding the edge really is, is uh, even more critical now than ever. Uh, on the flip side, I'd say the betting side of things, unfortunately, has gone backwards um, quite a bit in the last couple of years. So the market percentages are much higher and that's made it more challenging for punters to achieve the same level of profitability and, and turnover as they did previously. So on the, the handicapping analysis side, obviously those that are winning longer term and, and more savvy will be looking to make sure they are a step ahead. What does a step ahead look like in the last sort of 12 or 18 months? Is it just making sure the data you get is you know cleaned and make sure it is correct and there aren't any major issues or is it how you interpret it that's the, the area that you need to focus on and you know, a horse like Nature Strip comes to mind and just trying to figure out what all the times mean for a horse like that is probably tricky and it's drawn inside a couple of times and, and obviously has, has been, you know, different trainers and all that type of thing. Are there any areas that are more of a heavier focus that you've seen over the past 12 months in those areas? I think the edges are, are shifting all the time and, and possibly shifting quicker than they used to. So, you know, I discuss 
discuss these sorts of topics with a wide range of people. Uh, Liz, he's John Lawson, who runs our John's Analytics Services. An example, he's entirely data-driven. He doesn't do any video work, anything else, and everything he does is entirely based on your modeling of his own database by the PhD data scientists and the, you know, the calculations and ratings are derived from that. And, and he's revising that model every three to six months and finds you know, whatever mix of the 250 plus plus variables that you can assess about a horse in a race that actually has an edge completely changes in that period. And so staying ahead of that is the key. I've, I've just finished building a Power BI analysis suite that I can use in my betting uh, or anyone else's for that matter to, to quickly determine which of, you know, around 100 key variables are profitable and which are not in my personal betting and deep dive where necessary. And, and the next step is moving to machine learning with that, which I'm currently assessing. But yeah, adapting adapting is the key. You need to be able to correctly weight or order those 250 variables that you're assessing um, from the most important to the least important. And that changes based on the situation of a race on a, on a bog heavy track. You may you may consider the ability of the horse to handle the going uh, a higher weighting on certain tracks and distances. It's, it's the early speed and it's the map that are critical in a weight for age race. It might just be that true base rating or the handicap rating in a staying race. It, it might be the ability to run the trip. But in every circumstance, it's it's a different weighting of the variables that's important. And then that weighting can change over time as the market will catch on or not on some of those variables. In many cases, those variables I've just spoken about, there may not actually be, they may be baked into the price. There's no, there's no true edge in those. So, um, you know, you find even an example with bias that, you know, the first few races that can be over, after, after a few races that can be overcompensated by the jockeys and by the betting market. It might be an on-speed bias for the first few races, but suddenly all the jockeys are esteeming to, to hit the front and, and you've got a fast speed and suddenly the swoopers come home and in other cases the bias appears there but suddenly the track gets drier or gets wetter or the wind changes and um and so that, that bias turns around and, and many of the computer-based assessors you know don't actually change the markets at all for these factors because there's actually no edge in doing so but you know the, the most critical element i think is that with whatever edge you've identified you need to find what works for you firstly and then secondly you need to continually be testing that that edge actually still exists um, because often uh, that edge is now baked into the price. And, and you know, on the topic that you're talking about of, of speed, that's certainly become one of the major focuses um, in, in recent times. And I think, you know, it's gotten to the point now where I think there's a, a speed obsession to the point where I question for a lot of people who are using it whether they're really weighting it correctly anymore. Um, you know, where they're really overcompensating with this speed obsession uh, to the detriment of the other 250 plus variables that exist and, and that they can assess. Um, and if everybody is, is obsessing and overweighting their, their belief that their speed rating is, is correct or most accurate or most reliable, um, then the question of whether that's really the edge that that uh, many punters want to focus on or whether they want to try to focus on on getting around that and looking at the, the other variables that actually impact a race um, is open for question. But, uh, you know, from my experience in talking with, with so many different pro punters, they all have a completely different approach and they can all work at the same time. How does an individual or a very small group, let's say, uh, especially if they're not doing it full time, but even if they are, how do they go about continually testing to see if the edge exists, as you mentioned, or continually updating what they're doing or continually doing the the R&D on, on their system and their approach. And it, it seems like an unenviable task. And it, it strikes me that those syndicates and those groups that are able to pull resources are obviously well-placed anyway, but even more so as we go through this process of, of rapidly evolving edges and, and then the market's adjusting accordingly. Yeah, I mean, there's probably two parts of the question is what do the advanced syndicates and pro punters do and then what can the everyday person do? Um, you know, it's it's incredible when you speak with, with some of these uh, large syndicates, and and you know, I've been fortunate that it's the, they have a big four group. You know, Jelco and uh, and David Walsh are well known in Australia, but there's there's two others that are uh, you know part of that that group of four in, in Hong Kong that are you know they're billionaires, and 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 um, you know through through good friends, I, I've been able to spend quite a bit of time with them, and they. Uh, you know, sp speak about examples where 
you know their model was was raking in you know millions and millions and all of a sudden they they went through quite a period of losing and they couldn't figure out what it was um and after and after a few months they suddenly realized that in bidding in hong kong that the sha tin track had, had changed the camber on you know the turn from from i think the you know 600 meter to the 400 meter mark or something like that the camber remember changed and because and because the camber had changed their entire models got shifted upside down so you know it's quite incredible when you hear those stories to know the level of detail that they're going into and 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 what they need to do do to to you know find the edge and, and have the edge um and how something like that that, that most people wouldn't even consider can have such an enormous impact on on, on their models um you know when you have access to, to data and you have access to to people who um are experts in analyzing that data then you can test these things and test how they shift over time and test what the market is overestimating and, and underestimating um for the average person you really need to have a fair period of time where you're testing something but if you're finding that the market's opening shorter and it's staying shorter on on edges that you previously found um you know you were getting great value from then that's usually the indication that it might be time to look at something else and look at it either another way of exploiting that edge that you have uh, or, or finding another edge. Um, and quite often the, often the answer can be as simple as if you think the edge has, has disappeared and it's gone the other way. You know, you can look at laying those horses now if you think they're being overbet for a period and then uh, and then switch back um, when the edge comes, which is, is the cycle of how things operate. You know, an edge that was there can disappear, but then it can come back as as um, the large syndicates and the other punters uh, shift their their weightings of their models to the, the different variables. It is somewhat comforting that even the big syndicates and the billionaires and millionaires can have a a bad run and can lose some cash and, and aren't uh, immortal when it comes to their betting. Are you are you impacted by the betting markets? You mentioned before the percentages are getting higher. Directly for you, does that impact where you bet, how much you bet, how often you bet? Is it something that you know you might shy away from smaller provincial meetings, or or maybe you focus more heavily on on different aspects, just given how the market's evolving? One of the biggest shifts in the in the new betting environment, I think, is is shifting from betting early to betting late. I think the the first half of the the 2010 decade, I was betting early a lot and early markets were much better and the percentages were lower, the products available were better and there were more opportunities. And more recently, a lot more more of the betting is is late uh, now because the markets just don't open up on the bigger price runners until late. And I'm different to a lot of punters who, who I'd say focus on favourites. I more often look to get the favourite beaten and find the races where I believe there's a false favourite and bet around it. Um, and the advantage of that is that the markets have tightened at the skinny pointy end of the market with the favourites. So the opportunity with horses uh, at bigger odds is still very prevalent if you bet late. For me, <clears throat> I got to a point where it was no longer feasible for myself to bet for myself, really. I was so heavily restricted by bookies and, and many were not even abiding, even with the minimum bet laws for me. And, you know, I fire up a bookmaker website and I get a different price to what everyone else sees. I see a price on dynamic odds and it doesn't really exist for me. So I outsource my betting. Um, with a syndicate and no longer do that myself and you know the other drivers that i have you know the tipping services and i oversee winning edge investments and, and other racing related businesses and have an investment property portfolio i have other investments i have two young kids so something had to give and and, and that was the area that I, I chose to outsource but it was form i think a number of punters have had to adapt and, and i believe the edge with the prices and back in the favorites has diminished and and, and going wider hasn't to the same extent but you know i've Two very different methodologies of finding winners, a sort of standard standard database form and video analysis approach, and then the trials approach. And the trials approach really lends itself to maiden races and two-year-olds and three-year-olds, and that hasn't really changed. But the other approach I've switched from focusing exclusively on metropolitan races to, to then I focused almost exclusively for a number of years on provincial country races um, for quite a while. And then recently I've gone back to metropolitan races and predominantly major black type races and focusing on those where you know i can get more on and and you know focusing on where i think the edges are there a concept like all historical profiling major races that has really helped me to identify what it takes to win a major race uh, before analyzing that race and i found that very fruitful but i'm currently working on on a database um you know a new one pulling together data from from two prominent 
um, you know, database sources and two prominent sectional times providers and dynamic odds data and pulling that together into a bespoke database for myself to analyze edges and variables and, and take myself to that next level again. And there's no stopping in this game. You have to keep moving forward. You have to keep evolving and you have to keep yourself ahead of the market. And, you know, I felt that that's what I needed to do to take things to the next level again. And, and that's what I'm currently doing. Take us through the process of shifting all of your betting or part of your betting anyway to, to a syndicate. It seems like something for anyone who's a, a gambler or a better or a punter out there who, who likes betting and maybe even is very good at it, semi-professional, professional, that aspect of it is probably something that's very difficult to give up and, and obviously the control aspect and, and that being lost. Was that something that you struggled with, was difficult to, to eventually hand over or did you just have to look at it pretty methodically and put certain steps in place and ultimately it was the right call? Um, ultimately, there are people who are able to go out onto the track and, and, and place bets and, you know, you can get more on on the track and you can get more on um, at, at better prices quite often uh, on the track. Um, and, there, you know, there's, yeah, there's a loss of control and there's various things that you've got to, to weigh up with it. But for me, uh I sort of was forced into a corner, really. There, there, there weren't too many options. Um, you know, there was uh, – I had to either cut down what I was doing somewhere uh, and I couldn't really see where to, to cut it down. Uh, and I also was having to accept that I was going to get way, way worse prices than, than I could going through this option, which, um, you know, makes life a, a lot more difficult. So um, it ultimately was a, a, you know, reasonably simple decision. Um but you know, I think my advice is is you know try to try to get to the track where you can. There's certainly plenty of opportunities there. Um, and as I've said to, to most people, have have accounts with absolutely every bookie that you possibly can, and bet fair and and spend as much time as people tend to spend on uh, you know learning uh, about the betting and and the finding the winner. Uh, you know, spend as much time actually on on getting the best price because that is the one factor that can really change the dial for any punter more so than anything else. You know, I've spoken to punters who you know, spend hours and hours on the form or, or databases, all these sorts of things, and then you talk to them and they've got like three bookie accounts and, and it's startling. You know, that's, that's the easiest way to increase your edge immediately uh, is to absolutely everywhere and with Betfair, you can go on everywhere that you possibly can at the best price. Um, it's it's the most critical thing. So, um, you know, it, it's something that I've tried to educate people on. You know, for, throughout my time, is is that needs to be your major focus, getting the best price and learning when and where to bet. You know, has got to be your number one, uh, your number one focus ahead of everything else. So you mentioned before you you tend to work around the favourites, or you have more recently anyway. Has that resulted in in bigger swings in your betting, or is it very very manageable? And I think the the obvious follow up, and it's it's funny, I still read and hear different approaches to this, which is pretty startling. And I, I'm guessing you're going to have a a very clear answer on this when betting in these races. I'm sure you're betting on at least one and probably two, even three different horses or more to be able to build your own book around a favorite if you don't necessarily love the price. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um... You know, I certainly back multiple horses in a race, uh, and and there's no reason reason not to. Um, you know, you, you can you can provide a really you know simple example. Um, you know, if you have a if you have a three horse race, um, and the market thinks that there's you know a fifty percent chance of of horse one winning and a twenty five percent chance of horse two winning and a twenty five percent chance of horse three winning. Um, but you think there's a, let's say, 33% chance of all three horses winning, then why would you not back, you know, both horses t two and three? Uh, why would you want to just pick one and, and guess? Um, and then when you run the mathematics of that, you can use as extreme examples as you like. But, you know, if if there's one horse who's who's short in the market and you think it's got very low chance of winning, then you should be backing a, a very large number of the other runners in a race. Um, and unless you want to go to the option of, of simply laying the favourite, that's the other option that's available to, to punters uh, on Betfair. But 
but you know some some prefer to simply bet to win um and then it comes down to well how many of those do you want to back and and you know are you going to use kelly or what what sort of um you know what sort of formula are you going to use to to devise your edge and place those beds and, and where you're going to draw the line in terms of the edge you know it's not necessarily just if you're if the market price is above your rated price you might need a certain amount of of, of juice to um to be worth betting and, and to deal with that sort of variance um betting at the at the you know out, around the favorites it, it can it can have, have wider swings in terms of variance um you know backing multiple runners can can help with that um for me i've found probably the the biggest driver of variance is generally just the bias that's been inherent in the tracks more than anything else if the tracks are fair then i go very well and if they're biased then it's a lot harder so you talked about you're spending far more time betting at the the very end closer to jump time what impact has that had on the general punter as well as yourself are there many positives that come with that or is it is it simply something that's forced on you and you wouldn't prefer to do it and there's far more negatives that are outweighing any of the the remaining positives i think it really comes down to the the, the way that the process is, is working at the moment with the early markets, which is that they're set at very, very high market percentages. And then, and then they're sort of bent into shape by people sniping away at them, but no one's really getting any decent amount of money on. Uh, and, you know, you look at the Saturday market, you, you start on a Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and by the morning they're sort of, pretty pretty well bent into shape whether by friday they're more or less bent into shape um and no one's really got a lot of money on so the, the bookies are essentially getting a free market adjustment uh so so um you know while they're making mistakes in those early times they're not paying much for them uh and i think that's one of the limitations with the minimum bet laws i think if a bookie is a, a real bookie and they're putting up a price and they really should be should be forced to bet that price from the moment they put it up uh, no one's forcing them to put it up but once they do, um, you know they they, sh- they should be beholden to the, um, you know to the to the same rules that apply from from after nine a.m. Uh, so you know I don't think it's it's really ideal at the moment. I think I think it's sucking a lot of money from from the mug punters who are living in in the old times or uh, in this you know FOMO type situation where they believe they'll be better betting early when, you know, nine times out of 10, they're not now. And um, they'll be far better off waiting or even just betting BOB or Betfair SP than they are betting early because not only are they betting to these huge markets, but then the deductions are enormous sometimes and, and they're just getting ripped off, really. So the, the Friday afternoon punter that walks into the tab and, and fills out his paper slip still or, or puts in, you know, 10 or 15 different bets into the machine, he's far better off just doing BOB or bet for SP almost every time? Yeah, I would say absolutely. So have you thought about any way, obviously you mentioned one there about potentially having, not potentially, but making uh, any bookie that puts up a price to, to bet to minimum bet laws. Is that the only thing that, that can be done to try and make sure it's a real market or would that even condense things further and they may not necessarily be that interested in putting it up uh, as they typically do now, or are there other things that come to mind to try and, I guess, draw out the length of time, available length of time to bet on some of these races, given if it really is the last three, five, seven, ten, twenty minutes before a race, um, that obviously is going to have a major impact on that market. I think to start off, the betting markets have, have changed you know, dramatically in the last few years. And I think, to be blunt, one of the major issues we've had is, is you know, we've had prominent breeders in charge of racing, and it was, it was in their best interest to raise prize money to enormous, unsustainable levels and increase the prices of yearlings and the values of sires and broodmares. And when you think about how the industry is funded, it's, it's funded by punters. And to fund this extravagance, you know, the market percentages have increased, and they've increased to increase the margins of corporate bookmakers to pay the race field fees and likes and the like. And, and, and this situation doesn't really benefit the industry at all. Now, when I think about high stallion fees and, and stallion values and broodmare values, all it means is that our best horses are retiring early. You know, how is that a benefit to us? It's not. And when it's coming at a negative cost to the turnover and hence the funding of the industry, how is that a benefit? It's not. And so to add to the pain, then we had the, the, the lunacy of these point of consumption taxes from the state governments, which you know, to me is it's killing the goose that lays a golden egg. It's all being passed to punters to fund. And the, the point of consumption tax imposed by the governments has led to those early markets 
you know, opening at, at greater than 135%. Um, and the SP prices are even above 120%. You know, this is some five percentage points higher than it was in previous years. You know, that's that's like getting odds of a dollar sixty-five in a two-horse race now. The government's getting these huge tax increases, and and prize money is going through the roof. But but punters are suffering, and I don't really know of any other industry where the, the most critical customer is, is put last. You know, they're usually the VIP, but Punters are being charged double the price of admission and, and shoved to the nosebleed section at the moment. And punters have options. There's, you know, you can, they can turn over less. They can turn over nothing. They could switch their betting funds to, to sports, to esports, to pokies, to drinking or dining or any other recreational activity in the world. So, should the wheel turn so far away from the punter that they they switch their capital to to alternative sources and prize money will drop and the standard and quality of racing will drop and it'll cause irreparable irreparable damage to to this game that. That we all love, and so, um, you know, the, the bookies are paying more in fees and taxes. They're removing betting products. They're increasing market percentages, and, and it's all at the expense of the punter. Um, and so, you know, I think Winston Churchill said, "You can't tax a nation to prosperity. You can't if you try to tax yourself into prosperity. It's like standing in a bucket and trying to lift yourself up by the handle." The, entire economic history of earth has proven the statement to be correct and yet it, it feels like that's exactly what the racing industry is doing so um you know we can learn lessons from the uk racing there's you know, the annual turnover of of course betting in, in great britain decline year and year from 2008 to 2018 just keeps going down the prize money's in the pits you know the, the, the punters have different options in sports betting casino betting and esports and all of these sorts of things um, that offer better market percentages, and so you know, I think there's a lot that needs to be done in this in this place, and I think there's plenty that that can be done. I think the taxation situation needs to be looked at holistically. Racing needs the funds; it needs to get the majority of those from punters. You know, we want decent prize money, we want a vibrant game, but it, it needs to be sustainable. So, I think a think tank with the key government and peak racing bodies to, to discuss the serious reform on the taxation and the fee structure on horse racing and ensure its longevity and survival. You know, is 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 critical. The, the POC taxes aren't sustainable. Uh, the funding model needs reviewing. Contribution of the tab and corporate bookmakers and rails bookmakers, I think, needs to be assessed. And, and, and taxing companies on turnover or rather than profit or margin, um, you know, is, is not the right approach. Um, potentially merging the tab into one tote and getting more international investment could, could relieve the pressure on the local betting markets and. You know what we need is a bid and marketplace that's competitive and vibrant and, and generates turnover. Is that that's what generates funding? So, you know the, the minimum bet laws are ridiculous. The, the bookmakers aren't bookmakers anymore. We um, should be aligning more with with rails bookies. You know to win 5k at least. You know rather than than 2k, the the bookies should be forced to abide by minimum bet laws from the moment they put up the prices. As, as I mentioned, you know no one's forcing them to put up those prices, but they should be forced to accept bets at those prices. I think one one piece that hasn't really been discussed much, but a, a really solid idea would be enforcing market percentages. You know, we were talking about the markets for a Saturday. You know, on a Wednesday, let's say that the market percentages of the boogie wants to put up a market should be maximum, let's say one thirty percent. You know, I'm not being unreasonable here. Then on Thursday it goes to one twenty five percent. On Friday it goes to one twenty percent, and on a Saturday it should be you know one hundred and fifteen percent. Let's let's have a market that people can actually bet into it and at least people will appreciate that as they go as they bet closer uh was that bit earlier they're getting a, a worse market percentage but at least it's known and, and and the issue with the way they're treating the markets at the moment is they might open them up at you know 125 percent but then the horse gets backed it they, they they wind the price in for that horse and they don't wind the price out for any other horses so they're, they're not bookmaking that it's it's um you know they're, they're just ridiculous prices um you know having a price available to all is it should be something that's enforced. If a bookie changes the price for a certain individual logging in, you know, that fine fine should be six figures. So they so they don't do it, uh, and, and so we've got a fair marketplace. Um, you know, uniform deductions methodology. The, the bookies are really a law unto themselves in this regard. They're applying whatever methodology methodology they like, um, and even and the official top luck top luck. It's it's currently based on. Uh, you know, five or six bookies and having the same price at the same time, you know, and, and it's being gamed. You know, they're changing their prices at different times. It, it should just be based on whether a price was available with three bookies at, at any time of betting in that last 30 minutes of betting. That's a fair top fluck. And at the moment, that price is embarrassing compared to the actual or true top fluck on Betfair. So, you know, I certainly think that there's a lot of um, a lot of ways that the industry can can come together and look at 
trying to improve you know both the balance and and, and improve the uh, you know the market so that so that that generates higher turnover whilst also ensuring game uh, you know remains is it's obviously critical and, and required are there any silver linings to what's going on on the betting side or are there more viable options out there because it sounds like to me if you and I had to convince a let's just say a professional sports better to dip their toe into racing or get more involved in racing they really only have the exchange which is obviously very late they have on track options potentially if they want to you know gather up the the miles on the road and get out to all those tracks they have some limited availability with corporates but again closer to to jump time in play isn't really an option betting early like you've said is is really difficult if not impossible is there any silver lining within that if we had to convince someone to come over or is it is it requiring you know at this point it's past the tipping point and there's got to be change different regulation different enforcement you know, mandating margins and those type of things before we see any positive uptick. There's been a negative tone because, you know, punters are getting a raw deal at the moment, but there's always opportunities, you know, in spite of everything said about market percentages with bookies, the market percentages on Betfair haven't changed. The opportunity is still there on Betfair as an example. And, and um, you know, the issue is that compared to the UK, the market liquidity in Australia is still low, uh, which is a shame. You know, you can bet hours before the first race at a a lowly nothing meeting in the UK, uh, with reasonably substantial deep pools in Australia, they don't, you know, get going properly usually until the last twenty minutes. And you know, I think, I think Betfair's marketing is a bit off the mark. Potentially, they should be tending, but be mass marketing, marketing to get the, the tab crowd, the you know, mug crowd, for want of a better word. That's where they probably should be, and to simplify it. Um, but they don't, so they're still tiny compared to the corporates and. You know, it's a real shame because if Betfair was much bigger, you know, the corporates would be forced to be more competitive because uh, no one would be betting with them. And I mean, really, the, the, you know, the tab probably should create its own exchange. I can't for the life of me understand why they haven't. But you know, the, the opportunity is there on Betfair now, um, and the on-track bookmakers are doing great things. They're offering great prices and, and services well above the corporates, uh, and they're starting to get online. Um, so there's, there's plenty of opportunities to make money betting on horses. Still, there's no doubt, but I just believe the industry has a lot of work to do to, you know, shore up its future and, and improve things. And, you know, you sort of – I put forward some of these ideas sometimes on, on social media and people say, oh, but the taxation and corporate bookies can't survive. And, you know, I'd argue why do we need all these corporate bookies to survive? You know, there's this fixed mentality that they need to exist. But um, the, the point is who, who cares if, if – if my sole interest is the improvement and betterment of the racing industry, I don't really care if some of these overseas corporate bookmakers need to fold or consolidate in Australia or divest because we'd all, and I, I mean punters and the racing industry from, from a funding perspective, we'd all be better off with three corporate bookmakers who were spending, spending less on the above sort of suggestions that I, that I provided um, to dramatically increase the local and global turnover and to fund this industry and keep it alive. The, the current model is – you know, it's just killing that goose that laid the golden egg, and 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 once it's gone, it it's gone. So, you know that that's why I'm so passionate about it. I just think, you know, the industry really needs to take a step back and go, where are we going, and where are we getting our funding from? And I do, I do think that the <clears throat> the biggest and easiest way to improve the funding would be to have some sort of levy or tax on the breeding industry based on the percentage of either the sale of stock or or the stallion stud fees, and you know, this would share the load to a portion of the industry that, to be honest, really isn't contributing its share. Uh, I think that needs to be done. It's critical to the success of the industry, and it's time the industry starts getting vocal on this because um, you know the punters just can't keep funding everything. Um, you know, there's just no more room to move there. How about bet types? Because you know I've lived in the US a while now, and I see a, a strong push on pick six and, and all different options, including, you know, multiple races, multiple horses and things like that. And obviously in Australia, there's the quaddy and, and other options, trifectas and whatnot, but it's definitely not pushed nearly as much. And obviously there's, there's certain challenges that come with those different betting options, but have you explored much and even more recently around betting quaddies and what that looks like from a tab perspective, as well as things like trifecta, even if it's only on Group one race days or, or during the spring carnival, obviously the Melbourne Cup, it seems like everyone has a first four now and that's kind of evolved a bit more, but it's a very win-focused marketplace generally. And I think most people that talk about it, most of the coverage, and maybe rightly so, is headed that direction. But 
Have you seen any other bet types that you've either dabbled in or considered or spent some time investigating? Yeah, quaddies are uh, mathematically a, a good betting type, and I certainly do enjoy taking quaddies on, on, on the big days, um, you know, and, and when they're sort of black type racing on and the, the, the quaddie pools are, uh, are reasonably deep. Um, and most importantly, they're sort of taking out, you know, 5% of races. It's, the quaddies are the lowest takeout rate from the tabs of, of any bet type. So, um, so absolutely, they're, 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 they're not a bad betting medium. Um, I agree with what you say. I, I think racing should really be pushing the the big win type um, opportunity. You know, winning places it's it's there for for most, but you know you are competing with Lotto and, and uh, Kino and those sorts of things. And and I think having having these big jackpot pools with big sixes, um, which hasn't taken off hugely here, but like you say, it is huge in other countries. Uh, you know, Hong Kong has things like the Triple Trio. Um, you know, large quaddy pools. You know, I've, I've suggested before one of the, the best things that racing could do would be to, to come together and offer, you know, punting competitions um, that are, you know, cheap or f- free to enter. You know, if they're able to spend millions and millions and millions on prize money, why not have a punting competition with, you know, a decent prize pool? I'm talking, you know, a million bucks and, and have it over a you know, a, a spring or an autumn and, and certain rules and get absolutely everybody joining in and there might be a nominal costs or, um, you know, to enter. But any punter is going to want to have a crack at that and suddenly you've, you've engaged them, you've entranced them and you've got them interested, um, you know, for a long period of time. So, yeah, I, I do think putting really substantial prize money into some sort of, you know, punting, tipping competition um you know, would, would really generate an enormous amount of interest. Um, and, you know, Racing Victoria, Racing.com has sort of been pushing uh, the pick seven sort of thing, and it's a great concept. Um, and most of the time it's 50 grand. That's good, but you know, people aren't people aren't falling over themselves to do that. You want something that's, you know, going to engage the audience over a long period of time, and it's in the mainstream newspapers, and, you know, everyone can have a go and everyone wants to win. Um, so, you know, I think that's an option. And, and like you said, I, I think you want those those opportunities with big pools, whether it's quaddies or, or a big six or a triple trio, all these sorts of things. But, um, you know, they need to find a way to, to capture the imagination of, of the mainstream, um, you know, not just the, the people who um, are currently, you know, fans of, fans of force racing. So I want to ask you about pricing because obviously the way you're describing things it sounds like the options are relatively limited and you know all the information is more available, more accessible and potentially a lot of the uh, off-the-shelf approaches might basically spit out a sa- the same or a similar number. And if that's the case, is that negative necessarily or are there positives within that? For example, if, if your, let's say, 10 betting options all have the favorite at 280 and you think it's a $2 chance, Versus, it might be ten different options that have all you know relatively different prices from even money out to three dollars, which obviously is a bit of a extreme example. But are there certain things you can take advantage of when you know pricing seemingly is is headed in a more homogenous direction? The reality is, most of the leading syndicates in the world are heavily influenced by the wisdom of the crowd and the market price already. You know, you hear from the likes of you know, David Walsh, and was part of that original group before that included Jelco and. He and many others have started by trying to build these complex computer models to accurately price a race, and virtually all of them found it actually substantially more profitable to take the market price as the truth and then adjust that for the variables that they felt the market had mispriced or underbet in that event. So the largest syndicates, you know, they don't believe they can price a race price a race so accurately that they can disregard what everyone else thinks. So that's that's something for everyone to consider, particularly when it comes to not just model building, but also staking. Um, the challenge is most punters in truth would, would have no idea which of the variables that they weight as important are already baked into the price and which aren't. But I would argue that some of the activities that most punters undertake and spend a lot of time on have no value at all to them in practice. You know, and I'll I'll give you one example. Let's say let's say speed maps. You've probably spoken to dozens of successful pro punters, you know, in your in your business of betting bod cast and i'd say the first thing that they uniformly say they do when starting to do the form for a race would be a speed map 
Um, and I'd argue why. You know, you interviewed Dominic Byrne. He invented the speed bat when no one else was doing it. When was that? 20 years ago? Um, if every single punter in four miles is doing a speed map, then is there really an edge in it? And and don't get me wrong, on, on some tracks, bias tracks, for sure you have to do a speed map. You know, Canterbury, Caulfield, both of which in the last few months have been frankly complete and utter shambolic disasters as far as race courses go with just an inside rails lead bias. Um, you know, Cessnock and Mooney Valley and other tight tracks that have a clear pattern in certain tracks and just certain distances within those tracks. Yeah, speed maps or position running are more important than most other factors, but you know, I see people assessing the Melbourne Cup or Oaks and Derbies, and the first thing they do is a speed map as well. And I'm like, really? Why? You're not adapting at all of the of the 250 plus plus variables to assess. Do you reckon that's one that's really worth doing? Are you, you know, are you going to predict the speed map of 24 horses, most of which you've never seen in Australia? For what purpose of the of all those variables to to analyse? You know, do you think that the speed maps in the top 30 in that situation? You know, I'd say no. I'd say that you're wasting your time and you know, I, I spoke with one of the most prominent sectional time providers in Australia, and he spent many thousands of hours and dollars getting multiple PhD and mass gurus to try to come up with an accurate computer formula to determine the early speed of a race. And he had all the data of the, the early sectional times and you know, cross-referencing with the barriers and the jockeys and the standard early sectionals and everything. And after all of that, he could not produce anything that could, with any sort of remote accuracy, determine accurately you know, the early speed of a race with any statistical significance. And so, and that's impacted by two factors, you know, jockey intent. All the jockeys get speed maps done. So if all the speed maps say it's going to be a hot speed, guess what happens? They all pull the reins early and try to get a sit behind. Suddenly there's no pace. And conversely, they see a race with no speed on. Suddenly four of them all have a bright idea and want to go forward. And then you have, you have a track bias where it's favoring on paces early and suddenly everyone wants to go forward and the speed is suicidal and the back marker wins. So, even once you've determined your projected speed, you still then need to assess how that will impact the race because the old thinking was that quick early speed suit and back markers and slow early speed suit dog paces and now the more advanced thinking is that dropping anchor early can actually disadvantage the leaders and strong early speed can break the hearts of the runners behind. So even if you could accurately determine the early speed, what does that mean when you weigh that in and bias? So you know, given all of that, the average punter and even an advanced punter has to ask the question, you know, how many speed maps the average and advanced punter are doing are even accurate? And with all that time being spent on that, could it be spent on identifying edge and one of the other 250 plus plus variables that probably have a far bigger edge and and, uh, and importantly more certainty of accurate analysis? And you know, I've never said it publicly, but in the spring, from from sort of the June Brisbane Winter Carnival to November, uh, you know, the Randwick and Ponting to Carnivals, I think. You know, my tip service using as a using as an example because you can assess it. You know, made something like 130 units profit, about 22% POT. We didn't have a losing period in six months, and I didn't do a single speed map because I focused on other variables that I felt had a far more substantial edge that were worth my time, and ultimately involved backing the horses most suited to the race. And you know, when the tracks are racing fairly, like they did in the spring, um, you know, on, on those big traps, the maps are, in my opinion, of little substantial edge. Uh, but the key caveat to that is that when the tracks are biased, suddenly the map and position and run variable can can have more importance. But um, I think that's why so many, uh, including myself, have such a passionate hatred for unfair tracks. But you know, the, the point of that is is that there's many ways to skin a cat. And I think you know, in trying to educate the everyday punter, uh, you know, the point of what I'm trying to say is that you know, I've seen punters who uh, don't consider sectional times at all. In, in their in their betting and yet are hugely successful. I know punters who are entirely video-based and don't have a database and are hugely successful. Um, there's many, many ways to do things. Um, and I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is, you know, with, with this homogenous pricing that you're speaking about and with the situation, you need to find an edge somewhere. Uh, and I guess I'm saying the edge might not be where everyone's trying to point you. If everyone's trying to point you to their speed rating database or if everyone's trying to point you to, um, you know, their speed map, well, maybe that's not where the edge is. Maybe it's somewhere else. Yeah, no, I think it sounds like from afar anyway that we're at the very top of the bell curve when it comes to people using speed maps and even it, it finding its way into the mainstream. And you're right, that's a good indication that maybe it's time to hop off that bandwagon and you know maybe it'll come back around sometime soon where it is useful or maybe it helps some people get 
I guess, a frame for the race or a framework, and it helps them picture what they're, they're going into. But you're right, if that's a sole or dominant factor, then it's probably, at, at this moment anyway, not necessarily that useful. And it's it's interesting, though, because I, I think the quandary still exists where we want to try and educate the mainstream. And, you know, you, if I asked you three or five years ago, you might have said, or seven years ago, yeah, let's try and get them understanding certain things that are now less in vogue or more useful um to put it that way and then vice versa now if you are starting off day one tomorrow you may not necessarily start there but it is a challenge where i think we do need to do a better job at letting the masses know about how the smart people are thinking about it and obviously the problem with that is as soon as it becomes part of the masses it's it's no longer what the smart guys are looking at yeah i mean that is a challenge but i guess the point of what i'm trying to say really and convey is just that you need to be contrarian uh to to be winning if you're doing the same thing that everyone else is doing, um, the, the way the you know syndicates and the large large punters are, are operating, and the, the way that uh, the markets are currently, and the, the homogenous pricing, these sorts of things, you, you just you need to find an edge for edge for yourself. Be You need to look at what you think is missing, um, and if you truly you know, believe that you're going to be able to read sectional times better than someone else or speed maps better than someone else, you know, good on you. And, and, and some people can, you know, I'm not saying, you know, the people working solely on speed that are winning a lot, there's people working solely on speed maps that are winning a lot, but you got to back yourself to be better than them at that. Or you find something else. Um, there are edges everywhere and there's opportunities to make great money in this game everywhere in spite of, you know, what, what I've been speaking about in general, which is more that I'm, I want the game to improve. I want the game to be more open to everyone. I want the markets to improve because that'll help the funding. You know, it doesn't mean that there's not still great opportunities for everyone uh, betting on horse racing. There's, there most certainly are, uh, but you've just got to think differently. Where are things at in Australian racing? And I must admit that the amount that I do follow it, it doesn't strike me as if we're in a golden age, albeit I do think there are more internationals having more success and again i'm certainly not living and breathing in it but i do remember the old days of you would have a melbourne cup or a caulfield cup runner and putting aside maybe uh the japanese runners that had a bit of a, a hot streak uh, i think delta blues and then a couple of others uh what was it pop rock or something like that did well one year but what where do things sit now in terms of locally as well as internationally do you have a sense of whether we are in a, a strong period of time or maybe it's not the case I think in terms of the standard of racing um, in Australia, I think the weight for age and the staying ranks in particular are of a very low standard, quite frankly. In the spring, we had you know, Gatting came off a last placing and won the Group 1 Maccabi Diva Mile, second up at 100 to 1. We had Blackheart Bart come out as a nine-year-old after two tendon injuries and win the Group 1 Underwood at, at 100 to 1. Kluger was a seven-year-old who hadn't won for three years in Japan, hadn't run a place in its last four starts, couldn't even run a place in the non-black type race in Japan, came out and ran a, quite a close second to Winks in the Queen Elizabeth, which is you know, Sydney's version of a Cox Plate. So, um, you know, again, we had we had the, the Queen Elizabeth here this this year and, uh, you know, Dave won and he's not, a, he's not a superstar, but he absolutely brained them. Um, we had Eta James win the Sydney Cup who, you know, I was flat out trying to win a listed race previously. So, you know, the, the loss of Winks has, has sort of exposed the real lack of depth in the weight for age standard horses in Australia. Um, and as much as we all want to defend our backyard, I think the reality is the question marks internationally over the quality and depth of the form are probably warranted at the moment. You know, we've been blessed recently, like some, you know, true champions like Winks and Black Caviar. And despite that, you know, they are we're absolute you know, world champions, would won anywhere. Um, you know, hopefully another can come along and, and distract, distract us. But yeah, I think we need to look at the cause. There's, there's a couple of key drivers. The breeding industry is so strong. It's driven by the high prize money. You know, a decent colt is, is worth far more as a side than a racing proposition. Uh, and this is resulting in a large number of our top two-year-old and three-year-old colts not even progressing into their four-year-old year or beyond. And that leaves the geldings. But then you've got racehorse exports to Asia. They've exploded. We get around 400-plus horses exported to Hong Kong and China each year. So... When you think they're generally only accepting the younger horses, the two- and three-year-olds that are prepared to pay sort of telephone numbers sometimes, even for non-black type horses, you can see how quickly our depth and stocks are being depleted. And that's obviously having an impact on the quality of our horses. And this is why so many of our very best champions in recent times, such as Wings and Black Caviar and I think the likes of Enable Overseas, you know, they're all men. Um, 
but again, you know, I think when it comes back to punting, it it again comes back to to stop looking for the obvious and and start being a bit contrarian. I think I think the form between many states is more comparable than previously believed. Um, you know, we had the likes of horses like Mystic Journey and uh, and the WA horses really doing very well in the eastern states now and on. The evenness of the fields mean many horses are winning at far bigger prices than their true earning chance, and uh, favourites are vastly overbet. Um, particularly these sort of unproven horses with seemingly good records who find the next step a bit of a challenge. But I think I think punters are they're waiting and hoping for that next Wings or Black Caviar, and they're taking taking short odds about beatable commodities. We've seen we've seen horses like Avilius and Mystic Journey and Libertini and Ponsman and Nature Strip and Pippi, and they they all get beat at these really short quotes, and they're a handy list of horses, but. I do think, given the weakness in the in the stocks, there's, there's certainly an opportunity to back horses at at big prices because um, you know, feels quite even and they're just not as strong as as people sometimes want them to be. And what about tracks? You mentioned it before, and it's it comes up really, really often about how awful they are or how you know unexpectedly bad they might have been. I think obviously you know a heavy ten is a heavy ten, but there seems like there's much more chatter around about it. How does that impact? obviously you're betting and just has it had an impact with obviously the quality of horses and it might be a bit more of an unknown where you get more hundred to one shots up or, or what's your sense of how it's been impacting racing? Oh, look, I'll be blunt. I, I really believe one of the biggest issues in racing is the, the track preparation, the bias, you know, and, and bias isn't unavoidable. You know, it's an outdoor sport. There are factors such as weather and particularly wind and rain that create the bias, but, but there are mitigating factors available. And, and the first is the rail position. Um, and, you know, when people are on the record, you know, they defend the track managers. But I can tell you off the record, I spoke to a number of track preparers and experts, and they say in the vast majority of cases that these inside and rails and, and on-place track biases were avoidable if the track preparers took the right course of action. And you know, for me, to be honest, when I talk about track bias, I actually really just talk about the inside rails bias. I'm, I'm, I'm not that fussed about any other kind of bias. And and I don't think generally is anyone else. It's rare that there's an on-pace bias on its own. It hardly ever happens. Um, if it does, it's because there's a there's a rock-hard track with a, a short straight that generally favours on-paces anyway. But you know, I can tell you in Hong Kong and Japan and New Zealand, they, they don't have anywhere near the same level of, of this inside rails track bias issue that occurs in Australia. And you know, I believe it's a choice. I think that you know, racing fans and pundits and track managers are accepting of a form of racing in Australia where on paces and horses hiking the rails win, but it's it's terrible racing. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is is it's terrible for the industry in every way. You know, I've I've posted on social media about wicked rails bias in the past, and often, you know, the members that pipe up the most, uh, the members of the industry that pipe up the most, first and foremost, are the jockeys. And that's because the inside rails bias is inherently dangerous. If you're a jockey and you come to the realisation that the only way you can win a race on a certain day is to find the rails, you're suddenly competing for a tiny portion of real estate on a 450-kilogram thoroughbred running 50 or 60-something kilometres per hour, and you're in a 16-horse field, and everyone wants to be on the fence. It's, it's really, really dangerous. And then you think of a trainer, you've set a horse for a major race. You and an entire team have worked for months, months to prepare a horse for a certain race. And you can't control the weather or the track conditions, the barrier draw, but at the very least, you should expect that if there's 16 horses in a race, they will all have some chance of winning. And there's been a truckload of races you know, this autumn where there's, say, 16 horses in a race, and literally only three of them could possibly win after they've run 400 metres. And you know, how is that acceptable? How is it acceptable for an owner who's invested hundreds of thousands of dollars, often millions of dollars, to get to a race? And they go there with their family and their friends and their syndicate, and they get to the race and they know they can't even possibly win because they've, they've drawn wide and the, the fence is a travelator and the rest of the track is fucking quicksand. Like, you know, and only horses on the rails can win. It's, it's just completely unacceptable. And, and for me, it's, it's very fixable and it's quite simple. The, the fence and the on paces, are, they're already favoured by mathematics and physics. They don't need further assistance. So, you know, to my eye, if there's, if there's any chance whatsoever that the inside is going to be faster than the rest of the track, you know, any chance of all, then either move the rail or water the shit out of the inside, to be honest. Like, you know, Randwick and Flemington, the horses swoop. Often the rails are off, but do you ever hear anyone complain about that? No, because it's great racing. Every horse can get off the rails. That's easy. The, the field can fan 10 wide, and then every horse gets clear running. Every punter who funds the entire show and the industry can, can cheer for their horse in the straight, knowing they've got clear running and they've had a go. 
Uh, same with the owners and the trainers and jockeys. You know, it, it benefits everyone. It's completely fixable. It just takes the industry leaders to say, hey, this is actually the biggest problem. Let's just fix that. Stuff there's guidance on, you know, let's start with a good four and with a good three. You know, make the guidance to track managers. Just make sure the track is fair. Make sure you've eliminated the lanes as much as possible, in particular the rails lane, and make sure every horse is going to have its chance because that benefits jockeys, trainers, owners, punters, and everyone. Uh, and, you know, they won't make the tracks too hard because that creates bias. So, you know, frankly, the job of the track managers should be to make the track safe, firstly, and, and fair. And that's basically it. And fair means every horse has a chance. And that's all the industry asks. Uh, and so, you know, it's okay. That's just why I'm so passionate about this, this inside rails bias. It just keeps happening over and over again. And even though the Caulfield track got completely lambasted in the media by everyone on Blue Diamond Day, since then, it's happened another two times. You know, at Canterbury, at Canterbury, they had a couple of meetings where 11 races in a row were won by the leader on the rails, 11 in a row. Something like 19 out of 21 races that I looked at was won by the first two but that's not racing it's just garbage and it's avoidable uh, and you know i just i just think it's a massive issue and i think it's an avoidable issue and 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 the the, the governing bodies are, are there to 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 make calls on these sorts of things and it sounds like one that you know that should be the, the key focus of, of track managers and i think if they're given that direction and given that focus then uh they'll they'll find the solutions I can certainly hear it in your voice, and I'm just picturing the 100-meter final at the Olympics, and you can't win unless you're in lane one or lane two, and the outside six lanes have no hope. Yeah, exactly. It would, you know, people would just say, "What the hell is this?" Right? Yeah. That'd, that'd just be a complete joke if you had if you had running races, and you know, if you're in one of those wider lanes, you, you know, you're you're running, uh, you know, at half the speed of everyone else. So it's it's just ludicrous that that it happens, and that it happens so often. Um, and I, and I just do not believe for a second when people say that it's not avoidable it is avoidable it you know uh if, if that was the, the the key focus point then it would be completely avoidable yeah they would avoid it absolutely uh, one final one for you i like hearing your thoughts on on the tipping world obviously it's a it's one that you there are plenty of bad services out there and it always strikes me that what you're doing and how you're doing it and the terminology you use and i guess the process as well as the education part of it's critical what are your thoughts on the state as it is now with respect to the tipping industry? Um, well, you know, we tried to we tried to revolutionise the industry, frankly, at Winning Edge Investments. You know, trying to do the basic things that that I've spoken about a lot. You know, recording results of prices that members can actually achieve, you know, substantially downplaying the results compared to you know what what was available. You know, actually, posting those results on the website and social media you know, every single day, being a hundred percent transparent. Um, and I think it's a shame. You know, it's a real shame that. The tipping industry, you know, gets a bad rap from certain providers. You know, there are there are con artists in the industry everywhere. To be frank, um, you know, we had someone join, asked to join our services, a tip stream, we turned them down, and and now compares his results to ours when they're completely fabricated and they're recorded the highest of you know either the fixed price or the best tote or the top flux or the bet fair SP without commission taken out and you know using advertising to try to compare these things. But you know, in spite of that, he still doesn't post a results sheet because. You know, he can't actually make a profit, but pretends that he is. And even the biggest tipping service in Australia for horses, and many knows who he is, records at the, the highest possible price available anywhere at any time when sending a tip. So, you know, you've you got people trying to compare these things, and you can't. You know, one set of results is achievable and, and one is not. And, you know, I think it's unfortunate that there's a lot of dodgy providers out there, and it's it's easy for someone to set up a Facebook page or a Twitter page and, and start taking money. And, you know, I'm astounded at how many people actually fall for that stuff, you know, they might not even have a basic website or they've got no long-term record or, or they show the, these best slips can, they can be easily faked or, you know, with a, a, a weak bookie, you know. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of people taking people for a ride. But, you know, my aim was just to always be truthful and realistic about the realities of betting, the, the ups and downs. You know, there's lots of downs, but over time, if you're profitable, they're, they're simply part of the journey, um, you know. And, and, and I've spent time with, uh, you know, playing poker and having dinners with with two of the original sort of Jalco four and you know even these billionaires they talk to you about having these significant losing periods um despite having the most sophisticated and profitable databases and betting operations in the world but you know you still get these guys on social media trying to point out losing periods and it's like well you know duh you you, you know that 
you know about a losing period because you saw it in our results sheet and our graph, and that's what we're transparently uploading and referring to every day. But it's sort of moronic and childish, you know. Can you imagine walking up to to Warren Buffett, the world's most you know biggest and most successful investor, with 75 million at his Berkshire Hathaway annual conference and trying to pour, point out the, the poor stocks he invested in or the, the few months where his share price went down. You know, it's, it's idiotic. You'd be laughed out of room. But the, the issue with the tipping industry really is it's that short-term focus. It's, it's people sort of ask, what's the most important factor when assessing your own betting, you know, your own betting or a tipping service? And is it, is it recent units profit or is it POT or is it ROI or strike rate? And I'd say it's none of them. I'd say it's longevity and, and transparency. You know, there's there's hundreds of services out there that claim to have been around for a period of time, and yet the results are either non-existent or they only show a recent period. And you know, why do you think that is? The guy's been around five years and shows you the past year's results. You know, why do you think that is? What happened to the other four years? And you know, the, the latest trend is these guys don't show results at all. And at the end of the year, you know, some random period suddenly send out some summary of their results. You know, I've achieved X units and Y POT and, you know, who's verified that? It's, it, it's garbage to me. It's just nothing. It's, it's worthless. And, you know, we've seen the firsthand. We've had dozens of people trying to apply and join Winning Edge Investments as an analyst. And we, we trial them for long periods and, and most fail before we take them on. They either give up or they stop and they, they don't like our accurate recording or our transparency or our accountability or, you know, we audit the results and find holes and they don't like that, and, you know. We've turned them away and seen them set themselves up on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram with an inaccurate set of results that we audited and we didn't accept. And you, know, you just have to be really wary. You know, we're we're independent. We thoroughly review and audit everyone. We engage independent contractors to do that. We we offer a new service only when we're satisfied that'll benefit the members. And you know, unlike most tipping services, we we offer a profit guarantee. We don't receive trailing commissions from affiliate bookies based on losses. So it, it doesn't benefit us to have a Losing service is actually very detrimental. So, you know, at least people can rely on that as a general basis and mindset in terms of how we want to operate. But, you know, it's a tough industry. The reality is most punters just don't have the long-term mindset and the ability to to wait out a tough losing or drawdown period to succeed. And so, you know, they bounce from idea to idea, or they bounce from service to service, and they're looking for some perfect uh, service or method that never loses, and it and it doesn't exist. Um, and they sort of get suckered into ones talking about a big day or a week that they had and focusing on the short term. But it's, um, you know, it, it's about the long term results. Um, you know, and I've just tried to convey that in terms of you know, we just try to offer a range of services that suit different punters. Some are high volume, some are low volume. Some you bet early at fixed odds or some you just bet at BOB or bet fair SP and some back favorites and some back roughies and some focus on a certain state, some are Australia wide. But it's just about tailoring the right service to the individual which you know we like to help people with before they join but um yeah you know, I, th I think the key is just to be wary you know i think people um it's a real false economy to try to go with someone who's free or cheap uh when you're when you're turning over or spending as much money as you are betting you know that's that's uh, you know kind of cutting your nose off to spite your face you're trying to save a bit of dollars here but really what you're costing yourself is the opportunity to to learn and grow um and you know, bet successfully and, and learn from these full-time professionals and, and, and really get information from the right sources. Um, and if you want to be serious about betting, then that's really what you're going to do. You've got to be able to um, you know, critically analyze where you're getting your information from and whether that's actually providing you with a, a true edge and whether you're really lo learning and growing with that so that you can take yourself to the next level and, and actually, you know, really win, win on the punt. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, uh... It's a difficult one given there are con artists that do exist, but obviously keep fighting the good fight and, and hopefully those that are looking for you know long-term investments in different things, they can find it and audit it themselves and make the right decisions. And before I go, I wanted to just ask, and fingers crossed, we're all hopeful that nothing gets called off anytime soon, but I think the chances are that it may happen. And if that does, have you, and obviously there's been equine influenza before, but since then, I, I dare say you probably haven't had a day off in the last decade. If you did get, let's just say I told you you got three weeks off or four weeks off, what would that mean? Would that be a, a holiday? Would that be a time to go back and look at certain things? Would that be a, a full cleanse from racing? Or, or do you have the luxury of thinking what that might look like? Well, yeah, I, like a lot of people in the industry, would, would love a break. Uh, you know, I think the industry is just so wall-to-wall, -wall, and I know it's been causing a lot of consternation with the uh, 
know, trainers and jockeys and the like when there's, yeah, they've got to get up really early in the morning for track work and then they're racing at night time as well. You know, I think I think the industry as a whole needs to, to look at that. Um, you know, I know it's, it's wall-to-wall and, and funding, but, geez, they could really do with, with a day off a week, you know, a Monday or something. Um, even if each state had a different day off, you know, one state was a Monday, one state was a Tuesday, one state was a Thursday where they don't race. But, you know, I think all participants need that. Um, you know, I certainly don't want racing to stop and, you know, there's, there's just an enormous number of people that rely on it. Um, you know, but I, but I've been preparing in the background for it. Um, I certainly spending a bit more time with the kids and the family would always be welcomed and as, as it would with anyone in the industry. But, you know, for me, I'd, I'd certainly see it as an opportunity and, and that's how I always look at everything in life. And if racing did stop, I would spend all of my time on, you know, working on my database and, and identifying new edges and, and getting prepared for when it resumed. So, you know, I'd, I'd certainly see it as a huge opportunity in the same way that I think, you know, a trainer or a jockey or anyone could, could spend that time, you know, getting better at what they do and, and learning from someone else and, uh, as well as, you know, reconnecting with, um, you know, family and, 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 and having some downtime. You know, I think there's always opportunity with these things. Um, and, yeah, it would give me a lot more time to, to focus on, you know, the going forward and the, and the planning for the future. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be okay with it. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of people that, that do rely on it. And, uh, you know, the, you've got to give huge credit to the racing industry to, to, to still be running, uh, to really be the only sport um, that is still going. They've done just an incredible job. And, you know, as the trainers have said, they, they feel more safe on a race course than they do anywhere else. Um, the, the biosecurity measures that they've put in place and, the, um, you know, the measures restricting you know, travel in the various regions uh, that jockeys can travel in and, and that sort of thing, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's remarkable that we're still racing in this crazy time and it's a real credit to the industry and, um, you know, we're, we're very fortunate that it's still going. Um, but I, I just think if, if there was any break, then everyone in the industry needs to look at it as an opportunity to, to spend some time uh, to improve their craft. Yeah, absolutely. They've done a terrific job. And like I said before, and you reiterated, hopefully, just given how many people rely on the industry, it doesn't happen. But, but if it does, I'm sure it might be a welcome relief for some. Dean, thank you very much for coming on. I know it's been a while since we last spoke, and I always love chatting just given – you know the depth and, and breadth of your knowledge not just in racing and betting but but more broadly and it's always fun to get your insights so thanks again for coming on the show no nah, thank you very much jake i really appreciate you uh calling me back and um you know keep doing an amazing job you know people you interview are so insightful and everyone in the industry just, just loves what you do and uh and, and listening to the insights of so many different people and the different approaches and um and knowledge so uh you know it's incredible what you do and um and very enjoyable for all of us. Much appreciated.